When we think about the U.S. Capitol insurrection on January 6, 2021, we mostly think of clips. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. The House committee investigating the events of that day have poured through thousands of hours of these videos. But during the hearings, the public also got a sneak preview of even more moments caught on tape. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the 45th president of the United States of America, President Donald J. Trump. But this time, from a documentary that tells the events of January 6th, from the side of Donald Trump. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, July 27, 2022. Today, we're talking with documentary filmmaker Alex Holder. His movie, Unprecedented, aired this month on Discovery Plus, and it gave us an inside view into the Trump organization right when January 6th was happening. Alex, welcome to The Times. Lovely to be with you. So the whole country has watched these hearings for weeks, but how does it feel to have your film and your testimony be part of this historic investigation? Well, it is absolutely fascinating. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, what we did is we recorded history, right? We were in the room of the most significant moments in American history. And so for me, that was always the premise, right? That we are there to capture what is going on in the president of the United States mind at this particular incredible moment. The fact that it's now enshrined in American history is also something that's pretty fascinating. <laughs> Although the fact that I'm also sort of in that world as well is quite something. But yeah, it's been a whirlwind for sure. What was it like in the room with investigators? Like, how do you even prepare for something like that? In some ways, it's not that difficult to prepare because at the end of the day, the premise is you need to tell the truth, right? So they ask you questions and I would then give answers to the best of my ability. And, you know, it's not a difficult thing to do, right? As in answer their questions. And, and I think it was pretty straightforward on that front. The scale of this was not lost on me. I mean, this is definitely the most significant political investigation since Watergate. Chairman, it is my deep belief that not only is Richard Nixon guilty of bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors, but he must be impeached and convicted by the Senate if we are to remain a free, courageous, and independent people. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. The January 6th hearings are making the case that Trump knew that he had lost the election as a way to establish motive for what many allege was his criminal actions and provoking the insurrection. Did you ever get a sense when you talked to him that he really believed that he beat Joe Biden? Absolutely. Prior to me interviewing him, I was convinced that there was no way he could possibly believe in the madness that he was spewing. And I think, um, arguing against the sanctity of the vote for a very long time. I would like to promise and pledge back in 2016 to all of my voters and supporters and to all of the people of the United States. So there's a famous rally after the debate with Hillary Clinton where he says that I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election and then he pauses if i win 
So this idea of you know playing with the sanctity of the election has been something that he had been doing for a very long time. Okay, good. All right, thank you. When I finished my interview with him, I was utterly shocked that he became a man that now believed in his own lie and was uncaring as to what the effects of that would do. So essentially, despite the fact that his own attorney general had come to the conclusion that the election was totally fair and there was no evidence whatsoever to support his claims, he ignored that and still maintained the position to me in the White House as the incumbent president of the United States with all the apparatus, with all the power that that means. He's looking me in the eye and telling me that the Georgia election was completely flawed. You can't have elections that are meaningless. You can't have elections that if somebody controls the state of Georgia, because, you know, we have a governor that the poor guy doesn't know what the hell's happening. And a secretary of state, this guy's like a hard-headed rock. And he was coming up with remedies as to what needed to happen to allow him to prove that he actually had won. All I want to do is signature verification, and it's a total win. They don't want to do it. And they're Republicans. Now, what's their problem? They're stupid. Okay, they're stupid people. And that's obviously completely insane that the sitting president of the United States is saying that the election was a fraud and that 75 million people that voted for him didn't actually have their vote counted correctly. So it was incredibly dangerous. And for a person in that role to believe in a conspiracy theory is terrifying. And I felt after that interview that this was going to get very bad. Coming up after the break, more from those interviews with President Trump and his family. Alex, it's pretty unusual for a film crew to get so much access to a sitting president of the United States, especially right after such a high stakes election. What were some of the surreal moments for you during that whole process? Oh, I mean, there have been lots of surreal moments across this. I mean, from traveling on Air Force One to, you know, interviewing Trump after January 6th in Mar-a-Lago to witnessing the immense adoration that people have towards Trump at these rallies was fascinating. And in the series, we try to show what it's like to be in those rallies. People were just absolutely hypnotized by him. And Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution. We're like in the crowd, very close upstage, and we show the immense power, essentially, that Trump has over his supporters. I mean, one of the most remarkable moments was how Trump uses the apparatus of the presidency to showcase his power. They are trying to destroy this nation! I say stop that! You say steal! Stop that! So, for instance, he would make sure that Air Force One takes off at the exact crescendo of the song Nessun Dorma. His entire audience would see Air Force One roaring into the sky at that moment when the rally's finished. So he used his sort of stagecraft to continue this idea that he was all-powerful, which was fascinating to watch. Yeah, you could definitely say he's a master at that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for example, the famous armored car that the president sits in. So at rallies, two of them would be present and he would walk 
in between two of these vehicles and the vehicles would drive like sort of parallel to him towards the stage. And then you'd have sort of 25 secret service all around him. So, you know, he really used all the symbols that show what the president of the United States is. He would use that as part of his rallies. As you said, he obviously cared about reputation, showing off his power. But when you interviewed Trump twice after the attack on the Capitol, did he seem shaken at all about what had happened in the insurrection? What was very interesting was that there had been already quite a lot of conspiracy theories as to who the people were that went into the Capitol. And a lot of people that supported Trump were arguing that, in fact, they weren't Trump supporters. They were Antifa and and other sort of organizations. He didn't make those claims at all. Can we talk for a minute about January 6th? He actually said that the reason why those people went into the Capitol was because they thought that their election had been stolen and they were angry. Well, it was a sad day, but it was a day where there was great anger in our country. The people uh, went to Washington primarily because they were angry with an election that they think was rigged. A very small portion, as you know, went down to the Capitol and then a very small portion of them went in. But I will tell you, they were... uh, angry from the standpoint of what happened in the election because they're smart and they see and they saw what happened. And I believe that that was a big part of what happened on January 6th. He draws a clear line to why they were there and essentially condones the event that took place on January the 6th, which is astonishing. But it was Trump himself who had been telling his supporters for months that the election had been stolen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he'd been saying that the election was stolen from essentially even before the election had even been done, in a sense. I mean, he was talking about how mail-in ballots were problematic. Use the pandemic and the phony mail-in ballots to sabotage your country. We're not going to let it happen. And then obviously he makes the case ultimately all the way through from election day, all the way up until January 6th. And in fact, he still maintains the position now that the election was stolen. So the idea that he is the reason why people came to the Capitol was clear. I mean, he tweeted about the event. He said it was going to be a a very important event. I think he may have even used the word wild in one of his tweets. And then he had this crazy idea that the last potential chance of him remaining in office was to intervene in this ceremonial process on January the 6th and to put pressure on the vice president to not certify the results of the Electoral College. And so it was very clear that the people that came there were there because, to quote, I mean, he said that we need to fight like hell and take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much. So the idea that he was the reason why people believe the election was stolen, he absolutely was saying that all the way through the entire period. And therefore, he's ultimately utterly responsible for the events that took place on January 6th, regardless of whether or not he believes that he's right or not. You said before you didn't want to talk about Capitol. Should, should I move on? Yeah, let's, let's skip to six. Trump's eldest children didn't seem to offer much in your documentary of a defense for his actions leading up to and after January 6th. And we know that Trump said that his daughter had already been, quote unquote, checked out during the 2020 campaign. Do you think Trump's children really had no influence on him during this time? So I don't really understand how he can say that his daughter had checked out, because when I'd interviewed her 
around about early December of 2020, she absolutely knew exactly how her father had done in the election. I mean, she was quoting statistics and numbers about how he had performed better in various groups than he had in 2016. So she was definitely with it in terms of the results of the uh, 2020 election. With this warrior, my father, the people's president. What was interesting, though, is that my interactions with the three elders' kids, they never departed from their father's position. They always echoed what he said. They may articulate things slightly differently, but they always echoed what their father did and wanted because ultimately the only thing that's important is the brand. As the president has said, every single vote needs to be counted and needs to be heard, and he campaigned for the voiceless. That's ultimately their end goal. Please vote. Thank you. God bless you. God bless Georgia. And God bless America. And God bless our president. When they didn't want to speak about the events of January 6th, that was actually quite interesting because their father did. So that was sort of a departure from the normal narrative. What about Mike Pence? It seems like he's been the quietest about this whole situation, even though people were actually actively calling for him to be hanged. Yeah, the interview of Mike Pence was also pretty fascinating as well because we capture the moment where he is looking at his phone and reviewing the draft resolution that the House was soon to pass asking him to invoke the 25th Amendment, which was obviously a historic and remarkable moment. If the vice president and the cabinet do not act, the Congress may be prepared to move forward with impeachment. Mike Pence, he had a few things to say on that day. <coughs> 748. That's when I received it. But the House members got it a while back. Yeah, excellent. But ultimately, the most historic moment that we capture is him reviewing his phone when he sees that and, and his reaction of looking at it as well, which was pretty astonishing. Um, but tell Zach to print me off a hard copy for the sure. trip home. Sure. Great. I'm always hopeful about America. More after the break. I always believe that America's best days are yet to come, and I still believe that. Alex, uh, we have your documentary. We have your evidence tying Trump to the insurrection. We have the witness testimonies to the January 6th committee. It's all public. It's all out there. Will any of this matter to Trump supporters? I mean, I would hope so, because I think that at the end of the day, when you're calling an election fraudulent and the evidence is clearly shows that was not the case, and it's not just one piece of evidence, we're talking about copious amounts of evidence that clearly show that the election was totally free and fair. The idea that this is turned into sort of a political debate is concerning because at the end of the day, democracy relies ultimately on the vote. And we can see the effects of what this has done already in America, that in various states now, there are restrictions being put on, uh, on people being able to vote is obviously very damaging for democracy. With your help, we will finally pass powerful requirements for voter ID. I hope that people will understand that the 2020 election was absolutely fair and, and that the evidence President Trump has been talking about and still talks about holds no water whatsoever. When you were talking to Trump, did you get a sense of how he views democracy? I don't think he understands what democracy is, frankly. How so? Well, I mean, when you're the president of the United States and you're talking about 
needing to find brave judges who agree with him and essentially undermining one of the most important arms of a functioning democratic society, which is a separation between effectively the legislature and the, and the politics and the judicial system, then that's very, very serious. And I don't think you could say that a person fully understands democracy if they are advocating for judges to agree with their position and undermining those that don't. And, and in fact, what's unique is that of, of all the cases that were heard by judges across America during the period after the election was done, you know, they, they were all thrown out. And, and a lot of those judges were Republican judges. And some of those Republican judges were even appointed by President Trump. There was a Trump-appointed judge in Pennsylvania who just lit into the president saying, just because you want an election to turn out this way doesn't mean that that's what actually happened. So he just said they were all wrong. They didn't have the courage to agree with his position. And that's very serious. And I remember thinking how I, I couldn't believe I was hearing what he was saying at that time. And that's why they don't like to see it terminated with a fake election. It was absolutely remarkable. The last time there was so much attention paid for a sit-down between a former American president and a British interviewer was back in 1977 when David Frost talked to Richard Nixon. And that's when Nixon famously said this quote. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. This was all after the Watergate scandal. But later on, Frost did get Nixon to apologize for letting the American people down. In your time with President Trump, did you ever experience a similar moment or do you even imagine something like that happening? No, I don't think so. I think that what one of the things that the series shows and, and one of the things I really felt was the case with Donald Trump is that there is no room for defeat and for apology. There's only room for winning and for the brand. And ultimately, it's all about Trump. You know, democracy is secondary and elections are secondary. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is Trump. And obviously, in his mind, the idea of an apology is a, you know, a synonym for defeat. And so I don't see that being something that would ever happen. But I hope I'm wrong. Finally, Alex, in the last scene of your documentary, Trump indicated that he's going to stay in politics. For that final scene that you did, why did you choose to end on that? Well, I think that the cliffhanger is an interesting way of ending a film. It's also very important for people to know that Donald Trump isn't going anywhere. And his legacy is incredibly important for people to learn and to understand and to appreciate and not to think that this was an aberration and it will never happen again. Will he actually end up running is interesting because generally Donald Trump doesn't do the same thing a second time once he's lost. So that would be a departure from his normal approach if he does end up actually running in two years. I'll be making a decision in the not too distant future and stay tuned. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great honor. Okay. I mean, I can ask you 20 more questions. I know you can, but I've had enough. This is the third interview. Alex Holder, thank you so much for this conversation. It was an absolute pleasure. Lovely chatting with you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Denise Guerra and Katra Brasalian were the jefas on this episode, and Mike Heflin mixed and mastered it. Our show's produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Katra Brasalian, David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistant is Madeline Amato. Our intern is Surya Hendry. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Morland. 
Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shani Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eben. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow the times on whatever platform you use. And hey, got monkeypox questions and concerns? We want to hear them. Call 619-800-0717, 619-800-0717. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what do you want to know about monkeypox? And we might use your voice and question in a future episode. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. <laughs>